stand all over the house this evening. For those joining online, uh, we welcome you to church. Let's sing the old hymn of the church. Everybody will be happy over there. Lord, we worship you tonight, and we're so honored to be in your presence once again. We 
Pray, God, that you would have orchestration of this service. From this point forward, we ask that your presence just come down. We've ushered you in, and we ask that you take control of everything from this point forward. For that, we give you the praise and the glory and the honor. It is due your name, and the people of God together said amen. Amen. Will you take this time to greet one another in the Lord before we go back to worship. God bless you. Let's sing this old praise chorus of the church. Victory is mine. Victory today is mine.
sing this next song. It simply says, Thou art worthy, O Lord. Can you just close your eyes for a moment? Can you just kind of think about where God has brought you from and kind of where you've been or maybe what you've gone through recently, but how God has been there with you the whole step? Let this song be an anthem of worship, not just songs we're singing for a service, but, but a heartfelt cry unto the Lord together as we sing. He is worthy, and He's worthy to receive glory and honor. He is worthy to receive all the power and praise. So let's just make that our heart song tonight as we sing this unto the Lord as our prayer. So let's decree and declare it. Thou art worthy.
love on the Lord. We just talk to him just for a few minutes as they just play softly behind. But will you just continue to worship the Lord? Will you, will you remember what the day was like when you gave your heart to Jesus? Can you remember the day you came face to face with the cross and the cross of Calvary and the redemptive work of Jesus' blood? Do you remember that moment in time where you met him, where he, where you needed him most and he met you where you needed him the most and he was right there and he was willing to make the cross even relevant and so evident to you even in that moment in time and he gave you that opportunity to, to know him and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings but you got to know him as the resurrected, the crucified Christ but the resurrected Lord and Savior remember that day can just love on him for a minute just tell him how much you love him just worship him for a few moments we've got time just just talk to the lord tell him how much you love him and you adore him and you appreciate him for what he's done we love you lord we glorify you lord we magnify you lord we give you the glory the honor through your name oh hallelujah oh let's sing it together so i'll cherish it so Father, everything that we have sung tonight, Lord, that's centered on your loving kindness and to be like you and to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord and to, to see you high and lifted up, God, we all of that was only made possible because of the cross, that old rugged cross that we come to that where, the, where we present ourselves to you and we trade our sorrows for joy, we trade our pain for for healing we trade our our depressions and our our disappointments for for joy and for for gladness and the spirit of heaviness lord we trade for garments of praise and we thank you for that lord we love you we know it's the cross nothing else the centrality of the cross is the crux if you will of the gospel message everything hinges and falls on the centrality of the cross the, the old testament prepares us for the arrival of the messiah the new testament begins with your arrival and the conclusion tells about what you're going to do again because you are the resurrected christ it all centers on the cross and that's the god that we serve on god that would lay down his life for us to love us to adore us Father, as we get ready to break the bread of life, I pray you would be with us as we study your word. And you would help us to hear from heaven. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts, and our ears to hear exactly what your word has to say. For that, we give you the praise and the glory and the honor. And the people of God together said amen. 
Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to grab those at this time. Can we just give the worship team a, a hand of appreciation one more time today just for leading us and ushering us into the presence of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go with me to the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 15, and then we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 5. You can kind of bounce back and forth. They will be on your screen uh, this evening for, for you to follow along. We are still obviously in the, the Easter season, and uh, we talked this morning about being fastened together and, and the idea of the, of the cult and the triumphal entry of Christ coming into the city of Jerusalem. And as we track our way towards Calvary, and we try to get towards Calvary, you know, now we understand that, that Calvary, is, we're not there yet, but we're getting there, and we're going to get there shortly, but, but we're getting towards Calvary, and we'll get tracked, and we'll bring him the, the cross of Calvary and the resurrection uh, next Sunday together. But, but uh, there was other things that happened in the Passion Week of Christ, if you will, and I know we're in that Palm Sunday window, but 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 there was more things. Uh, uh, there was the Sanhedrin, there was the trial, there was the Lord's Supper, there was many other facets that led up to the cross. Uh, and I know we celebrate in the Judeo-Christian calendar Good Friday, even though we're not 100% sure he died on Friday. But, but we celebrate that as the day of on the Christian calendar of the crucifix or the crucifixion of Christ. But, but there were other things that happened. Uh, we, we talked a little bit this morning about the, the fig tree that Jesus cursed and turning the, the money changers out of the temple of God. All that is happening between blessed is he and crucify him. There's a lot of stuff still going on. And we're going to look a little bit about that today. But I want to look Proverbs 15 and 3 and then we'll be in Proverbs 5 and 21. And, and you'll, you'll catch what we're going to talk about once I read these scriptures here in a moment. The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good but notice notice the key word the eyes of the Lord are everywhere every place they are all he's an all-seeing God he sees everything the good the bad the ugly the in-between the secret things all those things he sees them all now Proverbs 5 and 21 says this for the ways of man what you and I do are before the eyes of the Lord. There's his eyes again. And God ponders all his past, meaning God knows what we're going to do. Even when we may not know what we're going to do, he already knows what we're going to do. In fact, one, one uh, scripture in the Bible says that the, the eyes of the Lord roaming to and fro, but the Bible says that the things that we do in secret, God knows, and he will either reward us openly or he will bring to light the things that we've done in darkness. He knows everything. If you don't believe it, ask Jonah one day when you meet him. Ask Jonah how well God knows where you are. He'll find you. Even if you try to take a cruise and get out of town, he'll come out on the water and create, create some turmoil on the water. I've been on a cruise before. It's no fun being seasick. I'll tell you about my seasick adventure on the whale uh, uh, tour in California. I prayed to God to get me off that thing. I've never been seasick, and I was like, Lord, please help me. Please get me off this boat. I don't care if we ever see a whale. Just get me off this boat because the waves made me so nauseous. It wasn't anything to deal with. Even Jonah thought he could outrun God, but God found him. His eyes are everywhere, roaming to and fro. So I want to emphasize both of these scriptures. The key words in there are the eyes of the Lord. Tonight I want to talk to you about what does it mean to be hooked by his look. 
What does it mean to be hooked? Now, when I use that word hooked, I, I, you, could, you could put that word captivated if you wanted to. What does it mean to have the captivated eyes of Christ looking unto me? And tonight, with the Lord's help, I'm going to give you three different times from the time he said, blessed is he, or till the time they said, blessed is he, do he comes in the name of the Lord, till the time he said, it is finished. There were three times that I'm going to point out. There were more, but, but three specific times that people were affected, not by the words, but by the look of Jesus. Sometimes God doesn't have to say anything, just his presence says it all. He doesn't even have to say it, just being in his presence says it all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, under the best of my ability, and under the unction, portion of the Holy Spirit, help me to preach your word. Hide me behind the cross of Calvary that I am not seen, but I am not heard, but you are. Take a coal from the altar of heaven and anoint these lips of clay that I may decree and declare what thus saith the word of the Lord. I pray, God, today that you would take a coal from the altar of heaven and anoint these lips of clay. You would bless the hearer of these words today. And let us, as a corporate body, not just be hearer of the word, but a doer therefore likewise. In everything we do, let it be for the advancement and the uh, Lord glory for the kingdom of God. For that we give you the praise and the glory and the honor people of God together said amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you are uh, seated tonight, I want you to put yourself in, in, a, in a picture here for a moment. I'm going to paint you a picture and I want you, I don't want you to say it out loud. I don't want you to embarrass yourself or maybe embarrass someone beside you, but I, I want to want to put you in a little bit of a case study, if you will, and, 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 and do a little bit of uh, psychology hypnosis on you and make you close your eyes and lay back on the proverbial psychiatrist couch and take your memory back to a place so so if you need to close your eyes you can or if you you want to get in that that frame of mind but I want you to not worry about the person to the left or right but just kind of put yourself at the with the sultriness of the voice that I'm talking I want you to put yourself in this this moment so here we go I want you to look back through the course of your life and I want you to remember or to, if you can bring to memory, someone you have met that just had a specific look about them. Maybe it was, a, it was, maybe it was the day you met your wife or the first time you saw your husband. Some of y'all, the first thing you might have saw was, I will never marry that person. Don't point fingers, Brother Dennis. You're pointing fingers. We're not pointing fingers yet. It's the truth. You see, sometimes we, our first look sometimes says it all. You know, we, we've heard people say all the time, first impressions speak volumes. A person comes to church and the church is dirty, the bathrooms are dirty, there's toilet paper all over the floor and it looks horrible. They might get a bad impression. That might just been a bad Sunday, but their first impression of us in that moment was we don't take care of the house of God. And they may think, well, if they don't take care of the house of God, man, what kind of health stuff do they do right here? First impressions we talk about when you go to a restaurant. If it's a new restaurant, Brother James, if the service is quality, if it's good, we may go back. But if you get a bad experience, if you went there six or seven times and it's been perfect, you go back and you get one bad encounter, you may go back again. You know, saying, oh, they just had a bad night. But if it's your first time going to that restaurant and they bomb, you don't go back. Because you think, to the first impression, I'm not going back there and wasting my money. That last time was a joke. I'll give you an example. My aunt this week went to Burger King here in town, and uh, she had this coupon that she was going to use for, for or try to use for, for a, a discount for a burger. 
she got up there, she ordered, she told the lady all this stuff, but she couldn't get the app to work or whatever, the coupon, and she's telling the lady, and she said, but I have the coupon, it says it's for yada, 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 you know, and, and whatever sandwich, and the lady, you know, said, oh, and you said it's what sandwich, and my aunt told her and whatever, and she, she pulled around, and she couldn't find it, she was fumbling around, she's like, I, I can't find the coupon, but I know that's the coupon that I had on my phone, whatever, and the response of the lady at the Burger King was simply this, no code, no burger, goodbye. Now, my aunt, who is four foot eleven, going to heaven, and she's just this tall. She, she, uh, you know, she's she's a little short thing. But when you make that little feisty four foot tall lady, you make her mad. She might be four foot eleven going to heaven, but do you do know that dynamite comes in very small packages? Hello, preacher. And small dynamite still does destructive work. And my aunt says, "I will never." Go back to this Burger King again. I like Burger King, but I'll never eat here again. And we, my family, my dad was with her. He, he tried to calm her down said, now, you know, calm down. Everybody has a bad day, you know, this, that, and the other. Maybe I, let me see your phone. Maybe we can figure it out, blah, blah, blah. And she said, I don't care if you find the coupon. I'm not giving them a dime for the, my money. Because the impression she got at the at encounter was one of negative, negative encounters. But I want you to think about the time that you've met people that, whether it was your spouse, whether it was a, a, a certain, maybe you, maybe you went to the doctor's office and the doctor walked in and he looked all disheveled. His shirt was untucked, it wasn't ironed, he wasn't wearing, his khaki pants were all stained, not with, you know, you know, it just looked like he had rolled around in the dirt and he, he hadn't had his brushed his hair, you know, because some of those specialists, man, I don't know why they don't brush their hair, but I have went to like with Brian and other people, these specialists, and these guys come walking in and it looks like that a hurricane went through their head and nobody let them know their toupee is sideways. They don't know it. And that look says, you're going to operate on me? I don't even think you know how to operate on you. You know, because they have a look about them. Now, I remember a story Brother Randy told one time where he had a friend of his that, that got into a bad car accident and was in the hospital in Charleston. And Brother Randy was a teenager. He was not a pastor. He was not a doctor. He was not nothing. He was just a teenage teenager, an older teenage uh, uh, boy. and and uh, But his friend was in the hospital. Well, his dad... Uh, uh, Brother Randy's father, Brother Erzberger, had taught him that, son, if you're going to go places, look the part. Basically, you know, if you're going to go, act like you've been there before. Don't look like you didn't know what to do. So what Brother Randy do? Brother Randy dressed up in a suit. He walked through the front door. He walked past the receptionist. He walked into the elevator, went upstairs. Nobody questioned him. Sir, where are you going? Whatever. You know why? He was in a three-piece suit. Everybody thought, that guy looks like he might know what he's doing. He's going somewhere, and they never bothered him. He went up there to where he wasn't technically supposed to be, went in there, talked to his patient that wasn't his, Got to visit with him, come out. Nobody to this day knows that he's not a doctor because he dressed up in a suit because his look said it all. They thought, the man looking like that, he must be somebody important. It's sometimes our presentation, our appearance can speak volumes of, of things, and, and they have a look about them. Some people look distinguished. Some people look mad. You ever met somebody that has the resting face of anger? Like they, you know, we always have used the analogy, you know, Turn that frown upside down. You do realize that it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. That's, imagine that. And some of us work really hard to keep our frown. We try hard. Some of you, some of us in this room, and some of us in church, and some of us in this world, some of our own family, they have some strong muscles in their mouth. They have frowned so long that they are strong. They are working them suckers out. You've got people that look mad. Maybe they look frustrated. you got some people. You can have somebody walk in 
phone. Not, you know, a little 70-year-old or 80-year-old lady come walking in and her cute little Sunday outfit with her little tiny pearls and everything. And everybody just goes, you know, doesn't she just look so grandmotherly? We don't know. She could be a serial killer. But because she looks old and like a teddy bear and fluffy, we just think she's the cutest thing. And the bigger they are, the more we love them. You ever notice that? Like, if you see an 80-year-old lady who is well-rounded, you know, round is a shape, well-rounded, we just think she's lovable. She eats Debbie cakes. She probably has a snack cabinet. She's got a pantry. She drinks Diet Dr. Peppers or Diet Mountain Dews. I mean, that's the house you want to go to. That lady's living life. She has that look. She's grandmotherly. You see people coming in here looking like they're on a health kick. They've run, they're, you know, 75 years old, but they look like they're 55. They've been running the Cooper River Bridge for the last 40 years, and they're drinking water and eating celery sticks. Nobody wants to go hang out with them. We hate those types of people. They make the rest of us feel bad about our lives because there's a look. They have a certain look. No matter what the look is, there is this certain aura about them. Now, some of you may have had parents that they had looks distinguished looks, looks that could kill if they were actually eligible to do so. Now, you know, I know none of y'all in here had that, but, but I had that distinct privilege of growing up with that personality. My father could be playing the piano, my mother could be singing in the choir, and I could be somewhere about 25 rows south of the border in Oakley Road, Church of God, where it was mauve carpet, and there was about four, 35 pews on each side, and I was about at, I was about at pew 26 of those rows. I'm almost closer to the back door than I was to the front door, and, and my mom could be on the stage singing, and I could be playing my little army men with my Aunt Wanda and Uncle Bill, or I could be crawling under the pew, or I could be getting my chewing gum for my Aunt Wanda, because my mother said if you chawed chewing gum, you would choke and die in church, so I couldn't have it, and you know, peppermints and all these different things, and, and, and all this stuff, I was scared to even sneeze twice, and, and because, you know, that was disruptive kind of thing. At, but but there would be these times where, you know, I would I would get bored at church. I know none of you ever have that problem, but my ADD and ADHD would just, it just wasn't, the church that night wasn't exciting. It was kind of boring. And so I'd get to playing, you know, doing something. And my mother would not ever really come off the stage. She just had this look. I knew that look. I learned it quite well over my life. The look was, you wait until I get down to the stage. Now, it never was verbal. You could just see the look. But if words had an audible tone, it would have been, I'm coming for you. That was the look. And as I sat there, it was almost like, you better pray for the rapture, because if God doesn't come, you're mine. And I thought, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because she never came off the stage but she had a distinguishing look that I knew in that moment, I'm in trouble. Now, none of you in here, some of you in here may have had some parents like that. My grandmother's famous thing to do was not a look. She had these little things called fingernails and pinchers. She'd find this little fatty part at the back of your arm back here. That'll make you want to become unsanctified real quick when somebody grabs that section of life. And she said nothing. She just, and you thought, you felt all kinds of thoughts and, and feelings in your body. But the point to be made is there are certain times words were never spoken, but you could infer or you knew what was happening just by the look you were given. It never had to be audible. My mother never came down, the, down and got the microphone from the pastor and said, boy, you wait till I get off this stage. But her look said, boy, you wait till I get off this stage. I knew from the look. We've been talking about this idea of Passover and the Passion Week. And there's a couple times from the time they sang, Blessed is He 
comes in the name of the Lord and the time that he says it is finished. There was a couple times, and we're not going to look at all of them, but there was a couple times Jesus said nothing. He just looked. He didn't say anything. But his look said it all. In John chapter 3, or John chapter 13, I'm sorry, not John chapter 3, John chapter 13, in verse 4 and 5, I want to read this to you. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the dinner table, and he laid aside his garments. He took a towel, a bowl, and a pitcher of water. He girded himself. After pouring water into the bowl, he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he picked up. Well, you know this story. I don't have to read it. It was the foot washing at the Lord's Supper, where we get the institution of our church, where we talk about the ordinance, and we'll talk about that. Those of you that have been on Wednesday night and studying the declarations of faith with us, we will get there to where we as the church of God still believe in the ordinance of foot washing or the idea of washing the saints' feet as an act of humility of service one to another. And we still, even though we don't do it often, we still teach that in the church. And, and, and if you've ever been to a, a true foot washing service, it can be very powerful in that moment because you have learned to put aside your, 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 your pride and you are exposed to humility right up front. And it's very beautiful. But we know that story. But you know me, I start reading stories, I start thinking about being in the stories, you know my ADD brain starts kicking in and I start thinking about well, what, what happened, you know, I'm the guy that Brother James was talking to me tonight and said, you know, Pastor, I always seem to ask you all these hard questions that you're no way going to know the answer to and I don't know the answer, I just want to see what you're going to say and this, that and the other. I'm the guy in the Bible, I get frustrated when they leave the story on a cliffhanger. I'll give you an example, this has nothing to do with the message, but I'll try to tell you why I have some of this, high, uh, Jonah for an example. Jonah runs from God. Jonah gets eaten by a great fish. We don't know if it's a whale. Do you not think somebody would have wanted to know what type of fish it was? Am I the only one that wants to know what swallowed him? I mean, you get thrown overboard. Carnival loses you on the cruise ship, and you get eaten by a fish, and then six days later, seven days later, they see you back at the Charleston Harbor. Don't you want to know which fish got him back to safety? I do. I'm curious. What whale vomit or what shark tooth did you pick up in the ocean? Jonah, where'd you come from? That's one question. He gets spit out of the shore. He gets sits under a juniper tree. Caterpillar comes, eats the juniper tree. Jonah gets mad, and the book closes. Where did Jonah go? Did he get mad at God and never speak to God again? Did he go to an altar of repentance? Did he ask God to forgive him? Or is he still sitting out there like castaway on some deserted island, and his bones are rotten, and he's in Pirates of the Caribbean 26, and he's talking to a volleyball named Wilson? Where's Jonah? No one knows. To be continued. It's like an episode of Dateline or 90 Minutes, and that's the rest of the story. We don't know the rest of the story. But in this story, I have some questions. I want to be in this story because the Bible says in John 13 that Jesus washed the disciples. After supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. After he washes the disciples' feet, he comes back to the table and he, he basically predicts in John 13 after the foot washing about his betrayal and he says somebody in this room is going to betray me and and basically whomever I dip this morsel of bread and I hand to and they eat it they'll they'll do it and the Bible tells us he dips it he hands it to Judas and everybody else thought that Jesus was talking to Jesus Judas and Jesus were having this conversation because Judas was over the money and so Jesus says to Judas whatever you do go do us now quickly and he gets up from the table after eating the bread and everybody thought Judas was going to pay the restaurant he was going to pay for the meal he was paying the fare if you will or, or paying the bill if you go out and eat with brother Randy you got to be quick that joker will pay the bill before you even know that the lady's got your debit card I mean he's quick at this he's he's fast at these things and and, and so a lot of people thought Judas was just beating everybody to the punchline he's paying the bill 
Now, we know the story. He was going to betray Jesus. But look at the timeline. I didn't notice this until a couple months ago when I was reading through my Bible in here. The Lord had supper. He washed their feet. Then he predicted the betrayal. The Lord had supper. He washed the disciples' feet. Then he predicted the betrayal. Judas isn't left yet. But Jesus is washing the disciples' plural feet. But Judas isn't gone. So the first thing I thought about was, have you ever had a look of disappointment? I mean, think about Judas. He already knows he sold this brother out. He's already had a conversation. While the Feast of Passover is going on and they're crying Hosanna and all this stuff, they're trying to figure out Judas is selling him out. He's selling him out for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus calls Judas out and says, whatever you're going to do, go ahead and get it over with. Go do it quickly. But Brother Mike, before it happened, Judas got his feet washed. Think about this, y'all. Think about this moment. You mean the betrayer. Jesus knew he's going to be betrayed. But he still washed his betrayer's feet. He washed his enemy's feet. The son of the living God washed the man who was going to cause him the most hurt in his ministry. It would be the equivalent of a pastor having somebody in his church get disgruntled with him, take half of his church, split his church, move across town, five minutes up the road, plant the church, take 50% of the church with him, and that pastor calling the other pastor and saying, hey, we're having a special service. Will you bring your church just for one service one more time? And when that pastor walks in the door, the senior pastor at said church washes the guy who just took 50 of his people with him and washes his feet. That takes guts. That's what Jesus did. He knew that Judas had sold him out, but yet he still was like one of the rest of them. He got his feet washed. Now, I think, now you can, when you preach this, you can think and preach it the way you want to. I think there was something about the look of Jesus. Jesus never at that point had said anything. According to scripture that we know of, the only person Jesus has dialogue with at the foot washing ceremony is Peter. Because Peter's too dumb enough to realize, keep your mouth shut and let Jesus do his job. Peter's like, you're not going to wash me. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash you, then you can't be a part of me. And Peter said, well, then why don't you just go ahead and give me an entire sponge bath. Let me just get a wash from my head to toe. Jesus said, I'm not doing that. You can do that for yourself. I'm just going to wash your feet, son. Nobody else says anything because it's a surreal moment. You know, if you've ever been a real good foot washing service, <laughs> you don't really talk much. It's very powerful. It's very surreal. It's very, uh, uh, that moment is, is just that you, you don't really say much. You just enjoy the, uh, I guess you'd say enjoy, but you're in that moment of, of, of just serenity and that presence of God. The entire time Judas is sitting chair 11 or 12 at the table, he had to watch Jesus do John. And then move to Peter, move to James, Simon, Zealot, on down the line. And you know, Dal, I don't know about you, but if I was Judas, I would have started to think, surely he ain't going to come wash my feet. I hate the man. I don't want anything to do with this man. But he gets getting closer and closer, and I wonder the closer he got if the more uncomfortable Judas got. Because the closer you get to the cross, the more uncomfortable the devil becomes in your life. Because the devil don't want to be close to Jesus. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. So the closer you get to the cross of Calvary and to the Christ of the cross, the more the devil's getting a whole lot more uncomfortable in your life. 
That's why when God does something great in your life, the very next Monday is probably the worst Monday of your life because the devil couldn't stand what happened on Friday or Saturday or Sunday of that weekend that you spent with God. Judas, I, I can't imagine. Jesus gets on his hands and knees and starts washing Judas' feet. Now, I don't know about you that's ever done foot washing, but you do foot washing, you're normally focused on the feet, but in our version of foot washing in the Church of God and, and other churches that teach this, they often tell you to pray. They want you to pray for the, the person that you have are washing their feet. You know, we normally partner you up, and we'll you know, have Brother Randy partnered with Storm or somebody, and we'll say, you know, now when Storm, you're going to wash Brother Randy's feet first, and then y'all will switch, switch spots in the chair. But when you're down there, just pray for them. Just pray that God blesses them. You're down there, just you're, so, act of humility, but pray for them. I don't know what Jesus may or may not have prayed or said, if he said anything. But I just wonder if when Jesus started to slide the basin down to the last guy in the chair, if he happened to just look up like that picture and just make eye contact with Judas. He hasn't said anything to Judas, but he just makes eye contact with Judas. Could you imagine what you may have felt in that moment when the eyes of the Savior of the world looks at you Trying to give you one more clarion call. Trying to give you one more chance to repent. Trying to say one more time, Judas, we'll figure it out another way, buddy. We can. God has a plan. God has a way when there seems to be no way. We'll figure this out. Judas, you got one more shot. And Judas, to realize because of his hatred, he sees the disappointment in the face of God. Jesus moves on down the line. He finishes washing the disciples' feet. He gets back to the table. He breaks the bread. He dips the bread. He hands it to them. And he says, whatever you need to do, go do it quickly. Judas scurries off. Now, you know the rest of this story. Judas, Jesus gets tried. We're not going to go all the way to the cross tonight, but Jesus gets tried. Judas finds out that they have finally sentenced him to death. Now, I don't know if Judas thought they'd just beat him up a little bit, throw him in prison, and he'd be rich, and maybe they'd let Jesus out on good behavior. I don't know. We'll look here in just a moment that, that they had this, in that particular time period, they had this custom of the day that around the time of Passover that Rome would give away one prisoner. out of. So maybe Judas thought, well, I'll sell him out. I'll make a buck off of him and off of his ministry. I'll sell him out, but maybe he'll get released in a couple of days and we'll all be best friends again and it won't matter. Maybe, maybe he thought, my actions won't cost us very much, but can I tell you, sometimes your actions have greater consequences than you realize. They have sometimes grave consequences the word gets back to Judas that Jesus not only was not released but he was scourged and that now they have according to Roman law sentenced him to the most unmerciful the merciless the absolute cruelest form of torturing death at that time known to mankind known as the crucifixion it was a scheduled event in fact, the crucifixion was nothing to be lauded at. They would plan these things weeks and months in advance because they would cut the timbers to be about 75 to 100 pounds. They would prepare it. They made it a festival where you'd bring your children. Crucifixion day, you came and watched this thing. It was like, a, it was like an event for the town. In fact, Rome had mastered the arts back in that particular time that if you were an insurrectionist or if you, if you were, uh, if you were uh, uh, caught on the act of treason, they would actually, instead of using lamps to light the streets, they would actually tie you on stakes along the roadway leading into the different cities and light you on fire and your body served as the torches from one city to the next so that as you walked, you would know if I disobey Rome, this is what happens as a reminder to keep everybody in check. I mean, these people weren't friendly people. 
And Judas hears that they have sentenced him to the highest, cruelest form of death that Rome had to offer. The Bible says he couldn't contain it anymore. He goes back to the same men that he sold him out for. He chunks the 30 pieces of silver. And he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he runs out. The Bible says he takes his life. And he hung himself. Those same men took that 30 pieces of silver, bought a field. They call it, even to the day, the fuller's field or the field of blood. And buried Judas out there. And they went on about their way. Now, I don't feel like I'm taking too much liberties by saying this. I wonder when he heard the news Jesus was crucified if he remembered the look when Jesus washed his feet. I wonder if the moment he sat in that room with Jesus and he said, whatever thou doest, Judas, do it quickly. Because when Jesus dipped the bread and he handed it to Judas, I have to believe that eye contact was made. Just like if I were to offer you something, I'm going to look in the eyes and say, hey, Brother James, would you like a piece of cake? And I'm going to hand it to you to make sure our eyes connect that you know I'm handing I wonder if Judas had to continue to look at those eyes in his sleep. What he done. Look of disappointment. But then there's another situation that happens. In Luke chapter 22, verse 60 through 62. Peter finds himself standing around this great fire. Hanging out in the courtyard. Jesus is inside being tried. We know that Jesus had told Peter. Peter, right after all this happened, before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter told Jesus, Lord, I, I'm not going to do this to you. These other guys, they might leave you hot, but I'm going to stay with you. And Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me just like the rest of them. You're, gonna, you're no different than the rest of these boys. You're going to do the same thing. In fact, you're going to do it three times, not just once. You're going to do it multiple times. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 60 through 62, Peter is standing around this fire, and he's, he's talking, and a couple times throughout the night, people have already, some servant girls and some other people, they've come up to Peter, and they've said, hey, hey, man, aren't you one of Jesus' boys? Don't y'all hang out? And Peter said, no, I don't, I don't, that name don't ring a bell. I don't, I don't know that guy. A couple minutes later, another person comes out and says, I'm telling you, I've been to some of those miracles and those crusades and those 5,000 and 4,000 events that Jesus, I see you were one of his main guys. You served on his ministry team. You were on the leadership team. And Peter's like, no, y'all, I don't, I, don't, I don't know him. I ain't never seen a man. In Luke chapter 22, 60 through 62, they ask him again. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. One translation says Peter cursed. He got so mad at them asking. He was done. Which was the third time, and the Bible said immediately, not 30 minutes later. I mean, almost simultaneously, immediately, while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord, look at it in, uh, Madison, can you pull up, I don't know if you can pull up the Bible there for me. Will you pull up Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 60 through 62 there in the Bible app there for me on the screen. I'm sorry, I should have put that in there. But I want you to see this, if they, they're able to pull it up, I want you to see this this picture that I'm talking about. And Peter said, man, I don't know him. It's Luke 22, 60 through 62. I don't know what you're saying. Immediately as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And it's verse 61. I want you to look in your Bible. If they get it on the screen, that's fine. But not, I want you to look at your Bible and what it says next. The Bible says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He didn't say anything. Jesus already said, you're going to deny. Look at the scripture. Peter, I don't know the man. Rooster crows. 
immediately the Lord turned and he made eye contact with Peter. Now look at the rest of it. And immediately Peter remembered the word the Lord spoke and how he said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. It was the look. So the second thing is not only was there the look of disappointment, but there's the look of denial. The Bible says, one translation says, uh, one of the gospels say that when Peter found that out, that he took off running and he wept sore. Another translation will say he wept bitterly, meaning he went to an all-out breakdown and crying. He literally lost every bit of functionality that he could. He is like, you ever been where, you ever been where you've been so hurt or so upset by something that you cried so hard you couldn't see? You couldn't see the road. You couldn't see the people. I mean, you were crying so hard. Your eyes were so filled with water that you were crying so badly that you could not function. You had to kind of just stay where you were because you were just crying profusely. Peter took off running and he wept bitterly. So he could not. He cried lamenting out loud. He, He was broken. He was a broken man. But he didn't cry until Jesus turned. you imagine if every time we screwed up we sinned and we made a mistake if we were able to see the eye piercing look of Christ look at us with that look of not only disappointment in Judas's case but the look of I told you this was going to happen and yet you still didn't do what I said and now look where you are boy that hurts that's that takes this whole story to a new meaning I don't know about you but I'm gonna tell you right now there is nothing more gut-wrenching than when you get chastised by the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the old-fashioned whipping from the Lord, you know, and all the cat. I'm talking about when you know you are where you are because you didn't obey the Lord or you're where you are because of things and decisions you made. That you have never experienced brokenness until you feel in that moment you have disappointed the Lord and you feel that I mean, there's just something inside of you that just... You weep. You people will they'll come to the altar. I've been in church services where people come to the altar and they wept bitterly before the Lord because they were broken forms of humanity because they knew what they used to be and they knew what God used to do in their life. They knew what their marriage used to look like. They knew what their ministry, but they lost it all and they broke before God because they were shook and they knew that they wanted that connection, but it was almost as if they could feel the weight of the of the disappointment and the denial. They felt that look or that chastisement. Man, it just eats at you. It's devastating. There's the look of disappointment. There's the look of denial. Now throughout scripture there's other times I mean you know we could talk about the, the look Jesus gave at the cross when he you know, looked up to heaven and says father it is finished and Lord they forgive them they don't know what they're doing. We could talk about the look that he gave John when he when he said well son behold thy mother mother behold thy son and what that had to look like when a mama standing at the at basically at the impending death of her child and if you've never lost a child you can't even begin to imagine but if you ever have I mean just the weight of that she knows her her child's about to die and and Jesus is trying to in his last words follow Jew, Jewish law and Jewish custom where the oldest child was supposed to take care of the mother if something should ever happen to the father you take care of the mom so it would have been Jesus's responsibility to take care of Mary but his brothers were nowhere to be found and Jesus could so he had to give his 
best friend in the ministry, if you will, John, the beloved, say, please take care of my mama for me because I'm going to die, but somebody's got to look out for my mama. Even in his dying breath, Jesus is still trying to look out for others and take care of others. But, I mean, that look, I mean, no wonder John said, yes, I'll do it. I mean, it had to be captivating. I, that, but, that, but I could spend time on that look. I, I could spend time on the look that, that Jesus gave Pilate when Pilate said, what do you have to say for yourself? You, you know, they're saying you should be crucified. They're saying, what do you have to say? And Jesus said nothing. He just stands there and looks at him. And then finally says, it is who you say that I am who you say that I am. And it is as you've spoken. Or the look maybe he gave Herod when he was called. And neither Pilate nor Herod could find any reason to really crucify the man. I mean, I could go through all these different stories in this, this one week of events to talk about the looks that maybe people saw. But there's one guy that I think really got it the most. I'm going to tell you who it was. His name was Barabbas. I want to talk to you for just about five minutes and then I'm done. What was it like to be Barabbas? What kind of look did Jesus give Barabbas? Because here's the story. Barabbas, throughout the four gospel writings, and you read them interchangeably, they, they give different descriptors of Barabbas. But in essence, those four gospel writers say that Barabbas was a notorious thief, murderer, and one of them says he was an insurrectionist, meaning he was a rioter. He went out to the, Rome, die, Rome, die, Rome. He's, he's out there trying to overthrow Rome. He's an insurrectionist. He's a terrorist, if you will, to Rome, to Rome's eyes. Now, I told you the, the net measure of the crucifix. The crucifix was a planned event. You brought everybody around. And in Rome, they would scourge you. They'd kill you. You know, if they needed to. But they, they didn't like to do crucifixions except for the bad people because it took a lot of work. It was an all-day affair. You had to get up early in the morning. You had to get the beams that had been prepared, one for them to carry, the other one to be at the crucifix site. They had to have soldiers put it in the ground and have, a, a if you will, a wooden ladder on the backside of it because they would hoist them up with ropes. And I mean, it was an all-day affair. They would hang them up there early in the morning, and they would basically let them eventually suffocate to death because the weight, they would kind of hold them with ropes, and their weight would push down. But then after a while, they would figure out that they would keep pushing themselves up so the Romans would go by and break their legs so that way they couldn't break because the pain of pushing up would be so excruciating. So eventually what would happen is they'd fixate, and they would suffocate to death. But it took a long time to do that. So Romans didn't like, like to have crucifixions every day because it took all day to do it. So they planned these things out. You would stay on what we would call today death row for a while till they prepared your cross. And they would prepare each cross for each specific, if you will, uh, uh, criminal. And they'd have it custom made because you might be super tall. You might be really short. They wanted to make sure they get the most out of their bang for their buck. It was custom made crosses. I mean, this was an event. Barabbas is on death row. He's an insurrection. One thing Rome did not put up with, you can go back and read it in Western civilization. You ain't got to read the Bible. You can just go read Western civilization and history. Rome did not put up with rioters and insurrectionists and treason. Rome would might let you get by if you did some stupid stuff. But you start talking about the government, you start rising up against the government, your next time was going to be death. They didn't play games. You were either a human tiki torch or you were going to the cross. You... You didn't make it out alive if you were an insurrectionist of Rome. You just didn't. You made any pass at Caesar, Caesar took you out. So Barabbas already knew he's on death row. Barabbas may have known because, again, everybody in the prison, guards probably are talking about, hey, this is the end of this week's crucifixion day is Saturday. we got crucifixion day coming up. Barabbas maybe, no doubt, maybe had heard through the grapevine that, hey, it's your day. 
He might have known crucifixion's coming. He might have, you know, it's been planned out. The Roman soldiers talking about it in the in the prison uh, chatter. And he might have thought, man, maybe he's even like today. Maybe he had already got his last meal. What do you want before you, before the day comes? But there had been so many insurrections and riots that Caesar had begun, had began to get a little put out with a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. Caesar was a little angry at Pilate. History tells us when you look at Tiberius and you look at all the way down to Pontius Pilate, the Pontius Pilate was on thin ice because there had been so many insurrections and things going on that Pilate was the next guy on the chopping block. He had gotten direct orders that if there's any more scuttlebutt going down there in the Judean people and you can't keep those people happy. That's why Herod's supposed to be there. He's their king, uh, their Jewish king. But if you can't keep control, I'll take you out, basically kill you, and I'll put somebody in. But if I keep hearing this report, somebody's going to take, somebody's head's going to roll, and it's going to be yours. So Pilate's job was to not let it keep getting to Caesar. How do you know that, preacher? Because that's what history tells us. But the Bible tells us when they appeal, we'll just take this matter to Caesar. Pilate all of a sudden's ready to crucify him because he don't want Caesar to find out no more. In fact, the Pharisee says, we have no king to Caesar, and if we need be, we'll take this to Caesar. And Pilate says, oh, let's bring a bale of water, let I wash my hands. You know what Pilate was really saying? I don't want you to go to Caesar. He's protecting himself. But Pilate knew, because he was trying to stay in good graces, the Romans wanted the Jewish people to become endeared to them. They wanted them to become, if you will, connectable. They wanted them to like them. So Rome, every year, at the big, the biggest Jewish feast of all since the time of Moses, the biggest Jewish festival was the Feast of Passover. It was the commemoration of leaving Egypt. That was the biggest feast. So Rome knew that this is the big Mecca, if you will, of Jewish calendars. So Rome would always try to do something nice. They would say, hey, tell you what, at the beginning of the Feast of Passover, at the Passover day, we will release to you a prisoner of yours that we've arrested. Maybe they were, you know, gossipers. Maybe they stole some fruit out of the local market. Maybe it's somebody's mama, somebody's daddy. Tell you what, when Passover rolls around, we will let you guys pick one person that you want us to let go. And we'll let them off, pardon their sentence, let them out of jail. Maybe that's what Judas thought would happen to Jesus. I don't know. But they said, basically, we'll let you go. So Pilate's thinking, well, I can't find nothing wrong with this man. Herod can't find anything wrong with this man. Tomorrow, the person that's supposed to die for the Jews are, is a guy by the name Barabbas. He's a notorious thief. He's a murderer. He's killed people's family. He's an insurrectionist. Rome doesn't like him. I don't like him. The Jewish people don't like him. If I paint this picture of this man called Jesus who is giving you bread and he's healing your sick and he's raising your dead, he's making the lame to walk, the dumb to talk, the blind, he's doing all this good stuff, or I give them this hard-nosed criminal, no doubt they're going to pick the good guy. He thinks he's doing the right thing. His own wife tells him, now, Pilate, this is the right man. This is a just man. You better be careful what you do with this man. I, I've had a dream. This something ain't right. The gods of Rome have told me this is a righteous man. But then there's the look of deliverance. Because Pilate summons for this guy called Barabbas. He calls for him. So no doubt you hear the guards coming down. Barabbas is barred up in his little shackles in the dungeon. And the little gruff guard comes in. Barabbas! Get up. In fact, the name Barabbas, he was actually called Jesus or Jesus Barabbas. That was his real name, was Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Barabbas. It literally meant, the name Barabbas literally means the son of the father or the son of the teacher. 
What Barabbas did not realize is that he not only his name, Jesus Barabbas, meant son of the father, son of the teacher. He's getting ready to stand beside the son of God and the son of basically the teacher, the son of the greatest teacher of all, which is the Lord. And he comes down in his fetters, his chains. He's probably thinking, oh, great, it's time to die. They jerk him out to Pilate's Praetorium, and they jerk him out. He stands, and no doubt Barabbas sees the crowd. And he thinks, oh, they're all here because it's crucifixion day. They're coming to look at me die. Pilate stands on the judgment, sits at the judgment seat, and he says, would you have me to release this man, and he points to Jesus, who has been scourged and beaten and looks lifeless, blood and just his flesh exposed. Now, if I was Barabbas, you know what I'm going to look? Who's the other guy that's got options here? I'm going to look at who's the other guy between me and this guy. Which one of them they're going to pick? I'm going to look. And no doubt, I believe Barabbas turned and looked. But Pilate says, do you want me to release him or do you want me to release Barabbas? What if? Jesus returned the favor, and he turned his head to look at Barabbas. Eyes swollen, bloodshot, blood pouring, eyes swollen, but still that small ray of divine looks. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. He knows the way. What if that one people, the retina, the iris, connected with a notorious thief and murderer, Barabbas' eyes. And they heard, crucify him and give us Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas, son of the teacher, son of the father. Miss Carol, you make your way. And here's the part of the story that I'd like to know. What happened to Barabbas after that moment? I'm going to tell you, if I stood on the judgment seat by Pilate and I saw a man who looked like he had been, he had death combed over. But something about those eyes of that man connected to mine. When Pilate finally said, okay, release Barabbas. Sister Ann, when they undid my chains and they fell off. They did my fetters and stocks and they fell off. And he says, now Barabbas, go. As I'm getting ready to take off so that I can't be by these guards, you know, Barabbas might turn around and been like, finally, I don't like any of y'all took off. But my, I'm just telling you what I would have done. I would have one more time as I'm walking away, I would have turned one more time just to look at the man that's getting ready to take my place because I already knew because I've been in the dungeon, I've been in the prison, I've been hearing the chatter. I already knew they were building mine. They had mine already being built. I already knew that. They already gave my final meal. But I would, Sister Sandy, I would have wanted to look one more time at the man that's going to carry the cross I was designed to carry. Because I'd be curious. And when those eyes met, we never know, but I wonder if Barabbas was ever the same again after standing on that judgment seat. I can tell you, he may not have ever came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but I can almost bet everything I have he never was the same because he'll never forget that day where he stood and he made eye contact with the man that took his place and he was delivered and another man died. He never forgot that day he got out of prison. He never forgot it. And I say all that to say this. All of us have been Barabbas at least once. 
we stood at the judgment seat of God, metaphorically speaking, sin sickened and all but sentenced to die and go to eternal damnation to a place called hell. But Jesus went to a cross called Calvary. He died on it so that when I stand before God one day, and He says, Who do you say that I am? I can say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And He can say to me, His Son standing beside Him can say, But I died. I release the shackles of sin, the bonds of bondage, the fetters unfaithfulness. I released them and I let them go. And Father, I died. Jesus Barabbas, son of the teacher, son of the God, Father, God the Father, I, your son died so they could become sons of the Father. They could become sons of the teacher. Jesus died so that I could come. Jesus Barabbas, I could become sons and daughters of God the Father. I, he died so I could become heirs and join us. I could become family with God. And in that moment in time, whether it was at an old-fashioned altar, at a seat, in a prayer closet, when I left, knelt down and gave my heart to Jesus, it was as if I stood on that judgment seat and the look of deliverance came into that room and Jesus said, I'll take it from here. You go free. Go and sin no more and I'll take your sins from this point forward and I'll cast them as far as the east is from the west. We all are Jesus Barabbas in here today. But I don't want you to have the same story of Barabbas's where no one knows your ending. I don't want to leave this place or leave this life when I don't ever know whatever happened to the Ann Krauses, whatever happened to the Stan Friarses, whatever happened to the, to the Larry Weiss, what happened after that moment in time? I don't want the never know. I want to know after the Jesus Barabbas, the son of the Father, made reconciliation to make us sons of the Father and we were delivered. I want to know the rest of the story. Once he changed you, what did you do after that day? Once he ever made eye contact with you, what happened? Did you serve him? Did you love him? Did you work for him? What happened? I want to stand one day behind a sacred lectern when your, your mortal body is laying here. And I want to say, I have nothing to say. They've preached their life because Barabbas, the son of the father, the son of the teacher, they, when they got saved, boy, did they get saved. They got in there. They started working for Jesus. They started serving. They started leading people to Jesus Christ. I don't have anything to say. They preached their own eulogy, their own sermon, because when they had the look, deliverance on their lives when they were hooked by his look they never were the same again put your head bowed your eyes closed Father to the best of my ability I have preached your word today to these people Father I ask tonight that you let this word resonate in our heart that you would let us remember that you are God and God alone there is no one like you Father, I pray today that you would speak to every man, woman, boy, or girl in this house. Let them know. God, this Easter season we celebrate, God, it still can be just as real and alive as it was all the way back thousands of years ago. You still are delivering and saving and setting captives free. You still are taking the place of sinners and creating children of God even in these moments today. Father, I pray you would go with us and you'd bless us and keep us.
Make your face shine upon us. You'd be gracious to us. You lift up your countenance towards us. Give us the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. Let the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our blessed Redeemer, for that we give you all the praise, glory, and honor that is due your name. The people of God together say amen. Before we dismiss, I want to just make a couple housekeeping things. Don't forget this weekend, East Vegas Travaganza. My connection team leaders will be sending out a message tomorrow to you just to remind people, hey, if you're working, please let us know. Bring your stuff. We need to know what we need to buy. We need to know what to get. We need to get it here. And, and that way we need to collect it by tomorrow. We'll come get it. We'll bring it. We do what we got to do. But we need to know so we can get it, know what we need to buy. Don't forget, next Sunday morning at 7 at the tail race is the sunrise service. Be mindful of the weather. You, know, you never know. Cold snap can come through. Rain can come through. We have to change the rain contingency plan. It pours down rain. We'll still have sunrise service, but we'll bring it here. We'll just have it in the main auditorium right here. We'll still have breakfast, but we'll just bring it inside. We won't change having it. We just won't do it outside. So that's our contingency plan for that. If you have not, already, if you're planning on coming and you have not already signed up for breakfast, you need to tell me, or you're just gonna get donuts and coffee because I'm not buying you a biscuit because I don't know you're coming. Please make sure you sign up. Also, Easter's coming, and I'm into it this morning. But I'm gonna ask you to do something crazy this week. I'm gonna ask you to take some cards. I don't care if you pass it to the lady at Walmart. I don't care if you go to the Walmart parking lot and start putting them on people's cars. That's not against the law. They can throw it away for all I care. They can scan the QR code on the back to our website, to our Facebook page, to our Twitter account, to our Instagram. But it just says, come be our guest Easter Sunday, Santee Circle Church of God, free breakfast at 830, worship celebration at 11. We just want them to come because I want everybody, even if we have to do overflow parking, even if we have to use Sunday school classrooms, open these doors for people to hear the gospel. I want anybody and everybody that wants to know about the resurrected Christ, I want them to know about it. And we packed this place out. Sister Barnes will have me building a church the following week. So try to help her initiative. We want to help her out. So so there's plenty of cards. I think I have 100 of them total. We want to get them all out. I don't care. Take all as you can and just give them out. I just want 100 people at least to have something in their hand over the course of this week to know that Jesus is alive and well. That being said, I'm going to ask Brother Randy to come. He's going to pray our benedictory prayer. Immediately following the benediction, uh, you can consider yourselves dismissed. God bless.